Emergency Traffic Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Emergency Traffic Podcast, where we talk about firefighter and paramedic line of duty deaths to learn from the tragic events and potentially prevent them from happening in the future. My name is Paul and I'm joined by my co-hosts Doug and Dirk today. Zach is not available. Hello Doug, how's it going today? Yeah, hey Paul, I'm doing well. I'm a little tired with just life with two kids and a wife and working and extra working and shift work and everything, but it's the way it goes, I guess. It's what I signed up for, so just keep on going. Summer's just busy and now it's wrapping up, so trying to squeeze every last drop out of summer you can before we get that nice nine-month-long winter we're all used to. Yeah, for sure. I know. We got to have at least another month of summer. I'm not ready to quit yet. Dirk, how are you? What's new? Uh, I'm doing well. I'm not quite as busy as Doug. Um, and that's a lifestyle choice as well. Ah. Um, enjoying summer and uh, yeah, what's left of it. And uh, yeah, just you know, just hanging out right now on, on a couple of days off here, going back tomorrow. And yeah. Had a nice three banger here last week. Um, as part of the incident command system there, which probably I had the most boring job, staging officer. So that was oh, lucky! Too exciting there. I think Nick, Doug was there as well. <laughs> the first time ever, we were both in the same call. <laughs> oh wow, that's cool. Yeah, it wasn't that exciting uh, of a call though. It was most boring fire I've ever been to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, it, was, no. it was the complete opposite. Usually, the multiple alarm fire, you don't need the trucks, you need the guys to go replace crews. Well, this fire, it was one relay to a ladder truck had four pumps in it, one relay to a ladder truck had three pumps in it. So, you just needed the drivers for the trucks, and the everybody else just stood around, and the ladders did all the work. So we didn't need oh. the this this multiple on fire was for the rigs, not for the guys. Right, just blowing lots of water. Yeah, lots of pumping. I like that. Lots of pumping stuff. But but even then, I mean, the the relay pump is exciting when you set it up. When right you're doing it for the fifth hour in a row, the thing's already going. You're just standing yep. there watching a gauge, making sure it doesn't move. Like right. don't touch anything, and nothing will happen. Just leave it alone. Yeah, check the fuel. Where's yeah. the pizza? Yeah, the, where's well, the pizza? There's a don't, question. Don't, 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 don't go there. <laughs> there was a fuel truck that dragged the fuel line through the burning garbage to fuel up a truck, but that's not. Oh, yeah. yeah. A, 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 it was a uh, like a refuse or recycling plant or something. Yes. I think I yeah. remember, remember hearing yeah. about it. And just for like, just to brag, we had a total of 40 units on scene within that, I think it was 22 hours. For a bunch of garbage. Yeah. Well, as Doug said, you really just need operators, but that's not how we run. Yeah. So you exchange the whole crew. So, yeah. 
And wow. That was, that was the excitement we had here. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. What else is new? Uh, Dirk, you got away camping a couple of times, I think, with your son and your wife over the last month. A couple of times, and I'm going to go a couple more times, once by myself, next week. And then nice. after that, the week after, we get an exchange student coming from Spain. So we'll take him out into the mountains for three nights. I actually had to rent a different trailer for that. Because wow. it doesn't have a uh, furnace, and it oh. doesn't sleep. It sleeps three, but not four. So I just rented a uh, cheap hybrid. So, yeah. Did you rent a real pickup truck to drive around too? I got a V6. That's better than your four-cylinder pickup truck there. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, oh, sorry. That's Paul. that's Paul. Sorry, I confused yeah. you too. <laughs> it's a six-cylinder. It's not a four-cylinder. <laughs> and Doug, you've just been working, right? Oh, yeah. I mean... Overtime shifts and union shifts and real shifts and yeah, I just work a lot. Reading? You've been watching any games or reading any books or? Well, I'm reading a book on the Deutsche Deutsche Bank fire in New York that I'm slowly getting through, which I'm sure you guys will want to read after I'm done with it. But absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I'm just waiting for hockey season to start, which is coming up fast. So that's yeah. Typical NASCAR every weekend I watch, but you guys don't care about that. No, no. And Dirk, what about you? Reading anything? Uh, Watching movies? or I am reading, well, start reading a book again because I always fall asleep. I can't read at night. I can only read during the day. If I read at night, I fall asleep right away. It's the uh, No Nonsense Leadership by Jared Sergi. Okay. So, uh, this is Hand signature by him. Ooh, uh, autograph. I watched his presentation a few times on Zoom. Uh, it's fantastic. Uh, the I can't remember what the presentation's name was, but it's based on his non-nonsense leadership book. So, yeah, super exciting. Uh, I will have a ride along with me uh, on one of the night shifts coming up here from Belgium, the Belgium firefighter. Nice. He's uh, camping right now in the mountains. Uh, he's trying to dodge that. Uh, Fire and Jasper, I think they're kicking them all out because they are, have roving uh, uh, blackouts there. Oh, yeah. Powerologists uh, and stuff like that. And uh, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's going to be exciting meeting him and uh, spending a cool. few hours with him. Yeah. Cool. Great. Yeah. Well, I've just been camping every other week and I helped out with the antiques there on the weekend at the Harvest Festival and uh, and uh, getting started with my, uh, my Nate work lately as well. So, good. Okay, well, uh, this week's incident that we're going to discuss here on the uh, podcast took place just a few years ago in Farmington, Maine, where an explosion occurred at a newly renovated office of a nonprofit organization for adults with cognitive and developmental abilities. One firefighter was killed and five other firefighters were injured, as well as an employee of the organization. The building was destroyed as a result of the explosion. Worthy to note that in the Pacific or in the Atlantic Northeast in Maine, uh, this was only a year after the 80 structure fires that were caused by the overpressurized gas lines in several neighborhoods north of Boston in September of 2018, which forced thousands of people from their homes and resulted in 8,600 8, homes needing inspections for leaks and damage. Do you guys remember that? I remember reading about that one where all these houses just started blowing up because the too much pressure on the furnaces. That would have been a very cool call. 
I remember the video yeah. from these helicopters and like just houses on fire everywhere and reading the forms and stuff fired like just mutual aid coming from all over the place because there was like eight thousand houses on fire like literally. Yeah, there was there was uh, some good articles in that fire or NFPA journal and other magazines about it too. Yeah. Anyway, so of course when this happened right away, they're thinking, "Oh no, we're going to go through this again." I wonder if they had uh, automatic aid or mutual aid for the big fire. Probably. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. I think I don't know about that one, but was how many alarms did they get to? Yeah. So Farmington <laughs> is a community of about. Hey, sorry. I said that was a chirp at you. Ah, uh, you're trying to give me a hard time about automatic aid. Yeah, I know. Um, just the way it should be. Farmington's a community of about 7,700 people, about 35 miles north of the state capital of Augusta. It was established in 18, 1781. Population uh, rose another to 1,800 when the local state university is open during the school year. So 75, 7,700 normally, and then another 1,800 when the university is open. Uh, the Farmington Fire Rescue is 29 active members provide fire-related emergency services for the town of Farmington 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's a full-time fire chief with office hours during the day during the week, four full-time firefighters on duty seven days a week, 12 hours a day during the daytime, and on alternating shifts of two on, two off. Also, Monday to Friday, there's a department has a per diem firefighter on duty as well. So kind of like Fort Saskatchewan was doing when I was there, even though 26,000 people and they had three firefighters on during the day, during the week, and eventually on weekends. The apparatus in Farmington consists of two pumpers, a tower ladder, a squad truck, a rescue air truck, and a communications vehicle, a chief car, hazmat trailer, a gator, like the off-road side-by-side that's used for brush fires. And in the winter is a rescue unit with tracks when they uh, have people out walking their snowmobiling and stuff. Pretty small coverage area, 56 square miles in its initial response area, which is very common in the Northeast United States. Uh, small communities, side by side, other communities, and uh, may or may not have automatic aid. The building involved in this incident uh, served as a central office for this organization that was residential and life skills support to individuals with intellectual and de- developmental disabilities, had been in, in operation since 2003. The original building was a one-story partial basement, and it was approximately 2,500 to 3,000 square feet. The organization had identified the need for a larger facility due to training, meeting rooms, and administrative purposes. They purchased land to the east of the original structure for their expansion, and in the fall of 2018, the organization started construction on this expansion, which included an addition and a parking lot on all sides of the building. The addition included off a basement for utilities and storage, first floor, meeting rooms, etc., and adjoined the existing first floor of their previous building. And they also had a second floor added with offices and restrooms. The new basement did not connect to the existing basement, so it only connected on the first floor from the original building. There was two rooms in the basement separated by the block by a block wall. During the renovation, um, the existing propane tank, 250 gallons, which was located on the Bravo Alpha corner of the original building, was removed. A new propane tank, larger, 500 gallons, was located on the southeast corner of a property about 100 feet from the Bravo Charlie side corner of the new addition. 
the propane tank was, of course, protected by a jersey barrier as required by code. The building construction was completed and operational in July of 2019. The two-story office building with a full basement was approximately 32 feet wide by 81 feet long, and it was about 8,000 square feet. Now, I posted here the timeline of a construction project, and just because uh, some of the items are relevant here. So on June 20th, the propane tank was placed on the property, and ditching was completed for the propane supply line and service into the building. And they delivered just a little bit of propane to get things fired up, 125 gallons. On June 28th, so eight days later, and July 1st and 2nd, they paved the parking lot and the service riser from the propane tank uh, to the propane system was paved over by the paving company by mistake. On July 25th, after they figured out where the riser was and stuff and got it all hooked up, they delivered another 250 gallons of propane. In September 1st, the building opened for business. The third-party inspector never certified the completion of the construction project. On September 10th, four bollards were drilled into the ground on the Bravo side in the vicinity of the propane supply line entering the building, you know, just to protect the regulator and stuff. So they put up the, you know, steel and cement bollards. One of the bollards had, unknown to anybody, had severed the supply line running into the building. They were, oh, the bollards were installed to protect the air conditioning units on the side Bravo. The company installed the bollard, bollards, never requested a, uh, like here we call it, dial before you dig or a line locate before they put the bollards in. So they didn't check to see what was underneath for underground utilities. September 12th, so a week and a bit after they opened the building, employees reported there was no hot water. The hot water was supplied from the propane boiler. September 13th, propane company notified the building maintenance supervisor that the propane tank was empty and they delivered another 391 gallons. So we had a delivery of 250 gallons, a delivery of 125 gallons, and now 391 gallons. <clears throat> Three days later, the propane tank was discovered empty with frost on the bottom of the tank and the ground around the tank at about 8 o'clock in the morning. And the resulting explosion happened at 8.17 that same day. We'll get into the details in a minute on that. So the weather was like uh, 55 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, winds were out of the northwest at 6 miles per hour, not a factor in this incident. On September 16th, the day of the explosion, maintenance worker uh, arrived at the office building. He started moving folding tables from the first floor into the basement, which was a new addition of the building. After several trips to the basement, he started to feel lightheaded and he mentioned to the building's maintenance supervisor. The maintenance employee wasn't sure what caused him to feel lightheaded. Both employees were at the basement at the time. This was at five after eight. The maintenance supervisor advised he was going to evacuate employees from the building. So obviously they felt something was wrong. The lights were on in the basement. The maintenance supervisor turned the lights off when he left. There's no offices down there, just utilities and a big, just a big storage room. Upon exiting the building, the maintenance employee looked at the propane tank, which was located on the Bravo Charlie corner of the property, and the maintenance employee stated there was frost on the bottom of the tank and on the ground. At about 8.06, the maintenance supervisor called the fire chief personally and requested the fire and rescue department respond to the facility due to a possible propane leak in the building. Twelve employees were evacuated to the building and told to locate on the end of the parking lot on the Delta side. At about 8.07, the 
chief called dispatch and say dispatch the guys for a possible propane leak. And uh, a minute later, they dispatched the uh, town's fire and rescue department for a potential propane leak. The chief responded from headquarters, and at nine minutes after eight, uh, he got there at 10 after eight, 11 after eight. He parked his car in the parking lot near the highway entrance to the building. Tower three was uh, dispatched at 8.11 and arrived at 8.12. Tower three pulled in the parking lot past the fire chief's vehicle facing the alpha side of the structure. The maintenance employee met car one in the employee in the parking lot on the alpha side, walked with him beside Charlie to meet with the maintenance supervisor. When tower three arrived, car one advised the crew to bring the multi-gas detectors to the Charlie side. At 18.13, car one radioed county dispatch requesting response, response of a service technician from the propane uh, agency. The captain and the firefighter from tower three took the multi-gas meters to Charlie side to the propane tank. The deputy chief who had come on the jump sheet of engine two met the chauffeur from tower three. They walked to the Bravo side near the end of the parking lot. The captain and the chauffeur from engine two went to Charlie side to meet the fire chief and the crew from tower three. <coughs> Firefighter from tower checked the atmosphere on the Charlie side outside and nothing registered on the detector. Firefighter from tower three noticed the frost on the propane tank and on the ground around. He checked each bullard with the multi-gas detector, nothing registered on the detector. Car one then directed the crew from tower three to enter the building. They surveyed the first floor, nothing registered on the gas detector. Uh, they went into the basement. A firefighter on tower three stated the multi-gas detector started alarming at 10% LEL at the top of the basement steps. As the firefighter started down the steps, the LEL started increasing once he reached the basement the multi-gas detector read 100% LEL and went to full alarm. They're still in the building. The firefighter Tower 3 mentioned this to the captain of Tower 3. The captain was in the basement already and noticed a boiler on the wall. He was near the stairwell and he was only in the basement approximately 30 seconds before the explosion occurred. Prior to the explosion, the captain was in the basement with the maintenance supervisor, the firefighter from Tower 3 and the chauffeur from Engine 2. Car one and the captain from engine two were on the first floor. The deputy chief and the chauffeur from tower three were located side Bravo outside near the end of the parking lot at 18, 16 hours. Approximately a minute later, the explosion occurred, destroyed the first floor and the second floor of the new addition. The force of the explosion knocked down and seriously injured the captain, two firefighters and the maintenance supervisor in the basement. Car one and the captain from engine two were on the first floor were blown into the basement. Chauffeur of Tower 3 was walking towards Side Alpha of the building when it occurred. The explosion occurred. He was blown onto the grass on Side Bravo. Deputy Chief was standing on Side Bravo, was knocked down. After the explosion, Deputy Chief uh, moved the chauffeur from Tower 3 towards the tire shop and started medical treatment on him. The town police department called county dispatch to check on the status of the fire rescue department due to a possible explosion. He left police headquarters and started driving towards the explosion. He turned down the state highway and conceded that a building had exploded. He wasn't sure which one. He arrived on scene, advised dispatch that an explosion had occurred and the office building provided the address, called for power company and ambulances to respond. The police officer took command of the incident at this time at 821. These actions of the police officer were confirmed by footage from his body, cam uh, body camera 
Also, at 1820 hours, county dispatch transmitted a mass casualty incident response for five medic units to the incident. When police officer three arrived on scene, he parked his vehicle behind engine two on the state road. Bystanders were starting to assess, access the property to assist with injured firefighters and civilians. The police officer went to, to the Bravo side, being power lines on the power lines were down on the Delta side. He approached the building. He identified the entire building had blown been blown off the foundation. He could see the captain of Tower Three and the firefighter, uh, so he kind of took command. He made a bit of a, um, a triage, and uh, bystanders were climbing into the basement of the building to assist the injured firefighters and the facility's maintenance supervisor. There was active fire on the debris pile due to the explosion. All fire and rescue members that responded to the initial initial alarm were all incapacitated. Police officer three stretched an inch and three quarter line from the bumper of engine two, and a bystander who was also a volunteer firefighter pumped engine two. Police officer uh, passed the hose line to the captain of tower three, who was still in the basement, and the firefighter from tower three had climbed out of the basement. So just utter chaos, right? I mean, this happened. All the guys that were on scene are all incapacitated. So police and bystanders started to take over. Um, the uh, squad one arrived shortly after, and they assigned some other uh, lines to knock down the fire and to locate and treat the injured firefighter. Engine one arrived on scene approximately 823. Uh, and then uh, a medic started to arrive. The agency's EMS director who responded uh, took over a medical group supervisor and uh, triaged the people, made a triage treatment area and started transporting people. Won't go into all the details on that. They checked all the office building employees for accountability as well. Um, then, of course, they ran out of water because no one had hooked up a hydrant. Uh, so the police officer actually realized that uh, they ran a four inch from one engine to another and then to a hydrant so that they could have water uh, to continue fighting the fire. Um, the officer, police officer actually uh, have drove the truck to engine one where they could uh, hook up the hydrant and hooked it all up so they could have water. The, uh, the deputy chief county emergency manager took over, arrived on scene, and uh, he took over the uh, command of the, of the incident. So the contributing factors uh, to this, of course, were um, occupational injuries, of course, are often a result of one or more contributing factors, uh, which happened here is a lack of locating and marking underground utilities the uh, installation of the bollards severed the propane line, lack of pressure testing an empty tank by the propane company, odor fade or scrubbing because of the soil and concrete. So the mercaptan smell had been scrubbed out of the gas so they couldn't smell it. Lack of a scene size up and a risk assessment, lack of incident management, and maybe not understanding the gas monitor capabilities, improper sampling, monitoring, detection, I would say more the actions upon once they got the 10% LEL, they didn't react. Maybe a lack of hazardous materials training and certification. Um, I'm just, well, not super shocked, but um, there were a lot of uh, drop balls right from the get-go during the construction there for sure. Um, I, I'm not sure, Doug or uh, Paul, can you order your propane without the mercaptan like yes that, you can but you can. not but not for domestic consumption so 
a lot of propane that's used for industrial processes does not have mercaptan added. Just up the road from me here in my the town where I live, there's actually a mercaptan injection station. So they inject it in the pipeline before distribution. Yeah, I used to work for a gas company, and uh, I've transported uh, mercaptan barrels once to one of those stations up, up north here. Um, but I'm just uh, I'm shocked that they didn't put that in because that would have been the case right after they lost all the gas on the first fill-up. Somebody should have clued in on that one. Right. Well, the, the mercaptan gets scrubbed out when it leaks through the ground or concrete. My first the fire department I was on in, early in my career, uh, they had a call that was similar. Uh, they had a gas leak and they no one smelled propane because the mercaptan was scrubbed out by the dirt. Hmm. So that's the thing that people didn't think of is, hey, we didn't smell anything, so there can't be propane here. But if it, there's a chance it's gone through the ground, then uh, the mercaptan goes away. We had a call like this out in Clearwater too. A, build, a log building blew up. They went to turn the furnace on and there was a leak in the ground. They didn't know it. The basement was full of propane and he lit it. And the building blew up and the guy just made it out with his life. I, I agree with Dirk that during the installation and whatever of this propane stuff, there was a lot of drop balls, but that is a point that you can kind of focus in on or whatever you want to say that as a fire department you can't take it for granted that everything was done properly right you can't i mean you have to if everything got done properly all the time you wouldn't need fire departments we would all be out of business because everything would run proper so people make mistakes people and it's not intentional they just make a mistake and they drill through a supply line of propane whatever I mean, maybe there should have been some red flags when it was like, hey, we need the propane tank filled again. Hey, we need the propane yep. tank filled again. I mean, if your car kept running out of gas, you'd start wondering why it was running out of gas so quickly. When you and, and, yeah. and Especially when you don't have hot water. <laughs> one yeah, thing yeah that, I mean. One, one thing that I f noticed here on uh, when you were going through it is that's kind of a pet peeve of mine. Well, two things, really, that – when the crews show up on a truck, it's like one or two guys go do this. And then one guy from this truck and one guy from that truck go do this. And I don't like on small, sometimes volunteer in this, whatever, when like a chief officer rides on the truck because that's not your job. And I think you need to do your, you need to show up. If you're riding on the truck in the firefighters, quote unquote spot, well, now either the chief's job is not getting done because you're doing the firefighter rule or the firefighter rule is not getting done because you took that spot and now you're being the chief. And it, it creates confusion when, like, you're the deputy chief of the tr department, but you're riding in the back of the truck with a captain, and it's like, well, who outranks who? Who's in charge of who? It, it I've been on fire departments where there was that kind of, like, well, who's yeah. what's going on here? And it's, uh, I don't know how much that in this case had anything to do with what went wrong. It could have helped if that wasn't the case. When shit went wrong, it might have had less chaos going on if the chief, deputy chief, showed up as a chief and not as a firefighter in the building. I mean, you said that the chief that showed up on car one was in the building anyways. So yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to it knock the moth to the flame as command. You have to stand back and orchestrate and watch and take in the big yeah. picture. And then 
jokingly, I was thinking that this police officer got to fulfill his lifelong dream and be a firefighter <laughs> for an hour. But it sounds like he did a really good job when it was like, yeah. you're the guy. There's no one else left. They're all injured. Like, figure it out. I mean, it seems to me like they made it difficult. Yeah, no. in the you're absolutely right there. I mean, the, the, the big push behind this LODD report and the reason I selected it was because it's another case of the fire department going to a gas leak, not prepared for a gas leak, not thinking hazmat. But going back, we'll come back to that later in the recommendations. But you're absolutely right, Doug. And I've done that as a chief, you know, was, hey, well, can you go get the tender because we're out of people to drive or whatever? And so I go do that. And even if there's another chief on scene, what happens to me as a chief is the call changes. Something happens. Well, now I no longer have all my stuff. I no longer have my chief's vehicle. I can't go run. I don't have whatever equipment I might want. And so it's always bad because I've got one hand, you know, well, tied behind my back. And the, I went tender the truck. driver now because you were the driver and now you're right. doing the chief stuff. And now it's like, well, I mean, right. I've had it too where, I mean, the, the apartment we were on together, volunteer, but it was uh, on call where you were on call, had to find a cover if you weren't able to come. And like, I remember times that like the deputy chief would be covering for a firefighter and he'd right. ride to the NBC in the back of the engine beside me. Right. But when we got on scene, he'd be in command of everybody. But the right. captain was also in command of everybody. And it was like, yeah. who's doing what here? Like, you're, it's, yeah. Yeah, it can be a problem. It, and it's staffing. It's always staffing. And when I did command training and stuff with my captains and lieutenants, that incident commander, whoever the rank is, I don't care whatever the rank is of the incident commander, a big part of that commander for that group of people is, of course, their safety. And you need to stay back so you can see what's going on. So you can see that uh, something's, if something happens, you can react to it. And if you're inside, you know, starting a chainsaw or checking the gas detector inside the building, talking to the building owner, you're not doing your job of assuring all your people are safe. Whether it's a, a change in the weather, whether a truck drives through your scene, whether the building explodes, you can't do the job. So you're absolutely right. Let's look at the recommendations a little bit, and then we're going to we'll get into this some more. So, recommendation one, you know, when fire permits responding to a hazardous materials incident, should ensure a proper scene size up and risk assessment are performed. In addition, the fire department should establish isolation zones right away. It's a hazmat. We got a hot zone. We got a warm zone. We got a cold zone. Um, ensure continuous risk assessment is being done throughout the incident. Uh, at this incident. The members responded to a report of odor of propane or a propane leak. The fire chief arrived on scene and tower and engine two. Five to seven firefighters went immediately to the Charlie side and operated in this area and near the propane tank. Eventually, five firefighters entered the building. At this time, they didn't identify the leak. Several firefighters noticed frost on the tank, but did not communicate that information to the fire chief. A firefighter from Tower 3 stated the gas detector started alarming at 10% at the top of the stairs, but and they increased as they went down the stairs. Once you reached the basement, they went 100%. They did not smell ethylmocaptan. But, I mean, and this is why we do the podcast. Firefighters, if you're getting an LEL of 10 or 20 or 30%, you need to go, hey, this is a problem. My detector's going off. Uh, you know, this is dangerous. We need to be... On air, we need to have charged clotheslines. It could blow up. 
That's why the chief needs to stand back and take in the whole scene. People saw the frost on the tank, didn't put, didn't think much of it. Then the LEL goes off on the detector. They, in the moment, don't connect the two. A chief standing back, watching all this happening, letting it come in, thinking about it, might go, oh, well, one plus one equals two. Let's all take a step back here, right? Because, yeah, I mean, you show up to gas leak calls all the time, and you're you're and nothing. It comes in as an odor. Somebody smelled something in their house. Whatever you show up, you smell nothing. You walk around, you smell nothing. Everything looks fine. But when everybody's hair should have stand up is when the detector started going off, because that's when it's like, oh, there is something going on. Then you ha- like you say, don't rush in like it's an offensive fire attack. It's hazmat the 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 joke about hazmat hurry up and wait right that's right exactly hey when the when the alarm's going off that's when it's time to be like all right something's going on here we're a small fire department let's take this slow maybe call a hazmat team from somewhere evacuate the building just take it slow and figure out what's going on here at a fire you can be aggressive because most of the time you know what's going on something's burning go put it out at a hazmat call, you don't know what's going on all the time. You have to slowly figure out what's going on and then fix that problem. Yeah, right away it's defensive. Okay, where is it safe? Where is it not safe? Potentially. And so many fire services have gotten caught because they didn't treat it as a hazmat. And that's exactly what the recommendation says, just what you just said. It, it's not an offensive structural firefighting call. It's a hazmat. Defensive strategy. You know, uh, respond to the scene, uphill or upwind if you can, in a defensive manner. Go to staging. Don't everybody pull up in front of the house. Uh, area should be upwind, sufficient distance from the incident because it could be real. But I used to always get grief too. If I had a big gas leak, I would say, okay, bring the foam. Let's cover it up. And they'd all look at me like, what, 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 what? Why do you want to cover it up? It's gasoline and it's summertime. It needs to be covered up. It's emitting flammable vapor right now. Well, then they've got to get a vac truck. We're going to be here for two hours. I don't care. It's a danger. I'm. That's why I got the big t-shirt on is so I can protect the people, right? Uh, initial radio report was not performed. It should be done from the front seat of the engine. First arriving resource, the chief, for example. Hey, we've got a building. People are evacuated. I mean, we're going to check it out. So-and-so, get your detector, do a perimeter, right? First thing you do when you get a propane tanker on its side in the middle of downtown, wherever, what do you do? You send a crew in full PPE with a gas detector to do a wide perimeter and then narrow it down. In the meantime, you're setting up water supplies. This should be the same. The, the reason they were called is because the employee felt dizzy. So my first thought, so it wasn't a gas. It was somebody feels dizzy, maybe it's carbon monoxide. And I'm not sure if you approach a carbon monoxide call with the same caution as you would do if it came in as a gas. So I, that, that, I'm just thinking of staging all this stuff. I agree. Once they had the LAL alarm going off, uh, they should have backed out. But initially, you, you show up for probably a carbon monoxide alarm, right? But that's a good point, Dirk. And actually, I made a note of it here because there was recently, and I can't remember where, a carbon, mono- carbon monoxide is flammable in the right concentration, and there was recently an explosion of carbon monoxide, and they didn't think 
hey, it's CO, we'll be okay. And the complaints were all headaches, dizziness, unresponsive. And then all of a sudden the firefighters went in and, the, and it blew up. I'll have to find that one. Uh, because yeah, initially you could think that. But the guy who phoned the chief said, I think we might have a propane leak. So, you know, that kind of helped it there. And it being not being wintertime, but a new building, it could be carbon dioxide, right? The furnace duct didn't get, the chimney didn't get hooked up right, that kind of stuff. It was a cool day, 55 degrees. They had all the windows closed. So, so that, that's reasonable. But yeah, they just talk about, you know, do a good, uh, a good initial report and a 360. Um, if it's potentially flammable or explosive vapors, then, you know, uh, <clears throat> suspect the spill, contaminated environment. Recommendation number two was insurance and commanders initiate defensive strategy and communicate the incident action plan during initial operations. They didn't really have it. They kind of talked about it and walked around. Um, based on the tactical objectives taken to meet mitigate the hazard. Firefighters should be trained to understand the scrubbing or odorant fade of ethyl mercaptan from propane and natural gas. This training includes the use of multi-gas detectors to determine if a potentially explosive atmosphere is present. You can't, you can't depend on your nose to, to defend you, right? Um, yeah, they had 300, at least 300 gallons had leaked into the ground. No employees ever smelled ethyl mercaptan uh, because it gets scrubbed out. You, and in Alberta here, we have a lot of uh, propane uh, without mercaptan because they use it for industrial processes. And so a lot of time you'll see on a train car, you may, they don't do it anymore. You used to write on the train car, you know, propane, non-odorized. Uh, but now they don't advertise what's in the train car uh, for obvious reasons of security and stuff. The, um, yeah, it can lose its odor. And in Delmany, Saskatchewan, they had a call. I don't think I went on it, but I remember them telling me about it, is that, you know, they discovered there was a propane leak and the propane, uh, uh, the rotten egg smell had been scrubbed out by the dirt. Training on sampling, how to use your gas detectors. That's easy. What does your department do for gas detector training for firefighters? Probably just uh, during their 1072? No, maybe? No, we got we got regular training on uh, on the MX force. We we got a whole bunch on the rescue trucks that are called out to any gas leak or carbon monoxide leaks. And uh, not sure with COVID, it's slowed down a little bit, but we, we probably had training once a year at least. And then uh, if you're transferred to a rescue station, the guys usually teach you um, how to read the MX-4. And uh, Yeah, a lot yeah, of it's kind of on the job because every everybody's got different ones and new ones. Yeah, yeah bump tested every day. So we all got the right, same you're, you're station you go to. So that I, right. I, I think we're pretty well trained when it comes to that. Uh, but... Doc might have a different opinion because he's the hazmat guy. <laughs> I'm not a hazmat guy. I don't know why you think I'm a hazmat guy. I'm not a hazmat guy. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I agree with what Dirk said, but most of our gas calls, if it's a bigger structure, hazmat's coming and they are the pros. Or if it's a gas leak, then we call the gas company. I mean, we right, really yeah. have the detector to confirm or deny if there is gas, right? Like, yeah, okay. 
The other recommendation they had, of course, is make sure everybody's wearing proper PPE, including STBA, if a potentially IDLH environment. Um, they didn't sense anything until they started going to the basement. So that's, you know, minimum full structural protection clothing. Uh, and if you're in an ignitable atmosphere, then of course you have to have SCBA on and you should be stopped by a protective hand line. Here in Lacombe, if there was a gas leak where, well, you know, the guy called my, I just, I was digging a post and, and I hit a gas line right away. We would hook a hydrant and grab a line and stuff because you knew there was evidence that the traco just caught the line or whatever. But if it's just, I smelled gas and typically don't, is that kind of how you guys do it? Yeah, I mean, uh, even the ones where the guy hits a gas line, lots of times that coach just says, you guys can stay if you want, you don't have to. And they kind of deal with it on their own. But we we will stage at a hydrant, not always hook into it and not always stretch yep. a line, but we're there staged for if something goes wrong. Yeah, yeah we need to talk to the, uh, to the gas company there and then and just liaison with them and see if, if they feel... It is a little bit more risky. They will let us know, and then we'll we'll, we'll bump up the alarm or or pipe into the uh, pipe into the hydrant and stuff like that. So, yeah, we, we work with the gas company quite often, right? So uh, they they take care of that stuff. Um, but if they need help, they will let us know. Yeah, uh, you know, and it talks about uh, SOGs for this kind of uh, call: how to do sampling, detection, monitoring at propane emergencies, uh, you know, fire department should develop and implement SOGs for this, compliant with your uh, OHNS requirements. Uh, at least a couple of gas, uh, four gas meters usually should be in place in operation by uh, engine or truck company firefighters. And uh, command, so that command can evaluate the, the hazards and establish zones. Ensure firefighters are properly trained and certified to understand the capabilities of the multi-gas detectors, uh, especially the sensor performance, because they can also be, be poisoned, right, if you get too much. Understand how combustible gas sensors detect gas is critical to correctly interpreting readings and avoid misuse of these instruments that include uh, LEL combustible gas sensors. Whenever, and the big thing I highlighted here, whenever readings exceed 10% LEL, in an explosion and has fire, a fire hazard is possible. This is for the least conservative or highest acceptable alarm set point for instruments used for monitoring combustible gases and vapors. Uh, I just want to make a comment here is many people don't understand that the reading that your detector is doing, it's not essentially that it was calibrated to that gas. So if it's propane, your most gas detectors are calibrated to methane, which yeah. is natural gas you, primarily. You need to know that too. Is on our detectors, we know it's it's the LEL and the UEL, whatever, of this gas. Which right. It, it's for us. We just use it as a warning that something's going on, right? And right. But actually, ten percent LEL of propane using a methane calibrated detector is more than 10% of propane. Propane is more flammable. It reacts differently than methane. So that's actually like a 30% LEL when you see 10%, uh, maybe 20 some, 22, 25. So a lot of people don't understand that is it's not precise. 
Uh, and in, in our industry, in Alberta, where there's a petrochemical industry, I mean, you say 10% LEL anywhere and people are, they're running because they know that, you know, that's dangerous. But Something, for the, one of my I guess, final thoughts, overall thoughts of this call is, um, it seems like right from the very beginning, people are trying to downplay the event, right? The guy, he phones the chief personally instead of phoning 911. And the, the chief goes over there by himself and then the truck shows up and it's like, oh, just go check over here to see what's going on. And like, it's not, it's not treated. I mean, personally, we probably agree. You should treat or expect kind of the worst out of a call until you can rule that out and bring it back down to okay, everything's fine, right? When 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 you get an alarms call, you should expect fire. When you get a structure fire call, you should expect fire. When you get a gas leak, you should expect a gas leak and be prepared to mitigate what you're going to do. And then if you show up and it's like, oh, it's not a fire, it's cooking. Oh, it's not a gas leak, it's sewer gas, it's whatever, right? Then it's like, okay, well, we'll wrap this down then. Instead of showing up and being like, oh, shit, there's fire. Oh, shit, there's gas. And then you got to ramp everything up. You should be prepared and thinking in the mindset that we're going to the real thing this time. I mean, we always say, Dirk, expect fire, expect victims. It's You think that until you know that it's not there, right? It, I mean, a, a building isn't a vacant building until we say it's a vacant building, right? So that's that's the way you have to think about calls. Well, yeah, look at the the, the high rise in in Memphis, right? And they all took the elevator to the whatever ninth floor because they've been there twenty times before, and they always had alarms in that building, and they didn't expect fire. And and that is the biggest pitfall that our industry has is that we we get into a lulled into a sense of overconfidence and and. Not complacency, complacency, right? You know, exactly. Stretch a line, you know. Yeah, damn it, I can't argue with Doug, so I totally agree with him. (laughs) And yeah, as uh, Andy Frederick said, the garbage man does get excited when he sees garbage in the streets, and we should be the same. We should expect the worst and then downgrade. That's why we're there, right? That's the whole deal. But it's tough in the small cities and. And, uh, you know, it's tough everywhere. It doesn't matter where. You're doing medical calls all day. You're right. It is tough everywhere when you go to a thousand alarms calls before the one fire and you go to yeah. a, a, a whole bunch of nothing gas leaks until – but you still need to be mentally prepared for, like, this might be the one, right? Because, I right. mean, we, we all – in a career, you have, like – the building in your district that you go to a hundred times, right? False alarm, false alarm, false alarm. Oh shit, real fire. And you need to be prepared that it's a real fire. I mean, the, the high school fire that we went to in Lacombe, Paul came in and the first report was alarms ringing, right? And how many times do you go to an alarms ringing call and it's alarms ringing and you reset the alarm and you go home. But yep. there are times you show up and there's a reason the alarm's going in. You need to have, to me, you need to have the mindset that something is wrong. And that's why the fire department is coming. Right. Well, good. Great discussion, everyone. Kind of a, you know, it's a call that I chose just because it's a pitfall we fall into so many times. 
It was a good talk. It was good. To, it feels like it's been a while since we recorded one of these, so it was nice to get back it right has. here. It's good. It has been a while, yeah. yeah. It has been a while. Thank you, everybody.